for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading is coming from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 13, verses 24 through 43. He, that's Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like the leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels." Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun and the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, You may be seated. Lord, again, we we thank you that you've called us as your covenant people into this place um, to deliver us your word. Lord, I pray that you would be with our brother Steve this morning as he brings the good news to us. And I pray that your spirit would bless him mightily so that he would be able to communicate to us the words that we desperately need to hear. Help us as as your people to be attentive to the word and to consider how to apply it as we leave. We praise you in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. And as uh, Pastor Barnes noted, um, Steve Donahue will be bringing the word to us this morning. Mm-hmm. Thank you, John. I brought my water bottle up here <clears throat> because... I'm getting over a cold and I may have to uh, 
drink some of that. I apologize in advance if I had to do that. But I also wanted to bring it up here as a illustration. I don't know if you can see where the water line is, that it's about halfway there. And uh, if I were to ask you um, how to describe this water level, it's half what? Okay, good. A lot of you said half full. Some of you would say, well, it's half empty, right? And of course, the old saying is, is that you can tell an optimist from a pessimist by looking at a, a half container of water, and the pessimist will say that it's half empty, and the optimist will say that it's half full. I think naturally, our tendency is, especially when we listen to the news around us, and we uh, read papers, and we uh, we just naturally live in the world in which we live, our natural tendency is to look negatively at things. It, it's to naturally tend toward griping and grumbling and lack of faith. Uh, but I believe the Bible gives us a different perspective. And what my hope is today is that through three different parables, we will look at the growth of the kingdom of God, and it should give us encouragement. At least uh, that is the perspective that we see in the scripture. So I want to encourage us today from three different parables. And my hope is, is that through the first parable of the wheat and the tares, we'll see that the growth of the kingdom of God is mixed. Secondly, we'll see through the parable of the mustard seed that the growth of the kingdom of God is amazing. And then thirdly, we'll see through the kingdom or through the uh, parable of the leaven that the growth of the kingdom of God is pervasive. So first of all, then, the parable of the wheat and the tares. We see this in verses 24 through 30 uh, described, and then we see it thankfully explained in verses 36 through verse 40. So if you have your scriptures, turn with me to verse 24 of chapter 13. It says, In another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed, in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, The enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. And so what we have here is we have uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares. I know that uh, the ESV translation calls it uh, the wheat and the weeds. And uh, the tare was a, uh, it was, technically it was called a darnel. And it, was, it resembled wheat uh, very much until the fruit of it um, was appearing. And then it was noticeably different because the, the darnel seed was a black seed, very poisonous, whereas we know what the wheat seed looks like. And I, I think it's important to uh, look at the explanation of this passage. And I'm grateful when Jesus provides an explanation to the parables, because otherwise sometimes we can get off track. And so uh, let's look at the explanation here. Verse 36, then Jesus said to the multitude, or then he sent the multitude away and went to his house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. 
He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. And of course, son of man is a designation. It is the most popular designation for Jesus himself. He uses that most to refer to himself. Verse 38, the field is the world. I think this is important if we are to understand this passage correctly. Oftentimes, this has been uh, applied to the church only. Uh, But here he says it is the world. And of course, the church is in the world. It's also not the nation of Israel, as some might conclude from the Old Testament, where God speaks directly to the Old Testament believers. Nor is it the uh, future age. (coughs) Excuse me. Nor is it the future age, as the dispensationalists would want to conclude. But rather, it is the world in which we currently live and in which Jesus lived at the time of saying this. It says the good seed are the Christians and the tares are the non-believers. The sower is the sower of the tares is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age. Again, this is important to understand. I think the King James Version says that it's the end of the world. But the ESV and the New King James, I think, have it right when it says it's the end of the age. The New Testament speaks about three different ages. There is the the age of the Jews that ended about 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. There was the church age, which began at the cross and continues to this day. And there is the age to come, which is eternal life. And I believe he's speaking here about the, the present current age, the age of the church. And then it says the reapers are the angels. So in a world, there are two groups maturing together, one citizens of the kingdom and one citizens of the devil. And they will both develop alongside in this world. It speaks to us today then of a few issues. Number one, it speaks to the polarization between uh, those who are of the kingdom of God and those who are of the kingdom of the world. And we see that throughout history and we see that even in our present day. As the kingdom of God matures, there is a distinction, a growing distinction between those who are Christ's and those who are of the world. And this becomes even more noticeable as that maturity takes place. This has been true throughout history, and it is true today. We should not be surprised then, as time goes along, that we see a a polarization taking place between those who are of Christ and those who are of the world. But secondly, I think this also speaks to the presence of evil. Uh, it is, uh, it is not good for us to think of a time in which we will live in this world where there will be an absence of evil. It would be great, wouldn't it? If we lived in a world where all of a sudden evil was gone. Uh, but that is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, verse 5, where it speaks about the church even talks about the mixture that is within the church. It says the purest churches, even under heaven, are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. If that is so in the church, how much more in the world? that there will be this mixture between good and evil always occurring and growing together side by side, just as this parable teaches. But it also teaches us about the patience of God. 
Why doesn't God just wipe out evil right now? If, if I were God, which I'm glad I'm not, <laughs> if I were God, that's what I'd want to do. I'd want to just immediately wipe out the evil. But he doesn't do that. In fact, verse 29 tells us the reason why he doesn't want to do that. And that is because he is, he is waiting unless he uproot the wheat when he uproots the tares. It's said another way in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, Beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord is one, or with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to fruition. All should come to repentance. Now, the idea behind this is not that there's this universal salvation and he's waiting for everybody to be saved. But I think the idea here is the same as what's occurring in this uh, parable. And that is that he is, he is waiting for all of his elect to come to fruition. And so he's not taking out evil in the world because uh, if he were to take out evil in the world, then those whom he has called that have not yet been born or those whom he has called that have not yet come to faith even in this present life would not be able to come to faith. And so he is patiently waiting. It teaches us the patience of God. This is not to say that judgment will not occur. In fact, we know in the scriptures that it will occur and even says here in verses 41 and 42 that there will be an ultimate judgment of these two groups, one going to the fiery furnace and then one going to the shining forth in the kingdom of their father. And I think it's important to note that we would all have only one destiny as human beings if it were not for the grace of God, and that would be the fiery furnace. But out of his grace, he has chosen to call some to bear the fruit of wheat and not the fruit of darnel. So we see from the parable of the wheat and the tares that the growth of the kingdom of God will be mixed. But secondly, I want us to see from the parable of the mustard seed in verses 31 and 32 that the growth of the kingdom of God will be amazing. It speaks here about a mustard seed. And when we think of a mustard seed, we think about the mustard seed that we plant in our garden that is a small seed, but it, you know, it grows about so high or so and we pick it and it tastes good and has a little spice to it or whatever. But that's not the mustard seed that's spoken about in the um, Oriental world or in the Middle East, uh, they would grow a mustard seed that would start from a small seed, but it would actually grow into a, like a 10-foot-tall tree. It was a remarkable, amazing growth that would occur. And I, similarly, you know, in our world, we kind of look at tomatoes that way, right? We start a little tomato plant or we buy a tomato plant when it's young, and, and that thing can grow 10, 12 feet depending upon you know, how we take care of or how we trim it or trellis it up or whatever it is, right? It's an incredible amount of growth. And it amazes me the speed at which these things can grow. And, uh, and that's one of the things that's amazing about the kingdom of God as well. It's amazing because of the unlikeliness of the growth. Uh, I don't know about you, but it probably amazes you just as it well it does me when you take a little tiny garden seed, you can take, you know, tomato seed or mustard seed or whatever seed you want to talk about here, flower seed, and just a tiny, tiny seed. And uh, what, what is the likelihood of that thing growing? I mean, you think about all that has to take place for that to be able to grow. It's got to be able to get to the underground and be compressed a little bit so that it meets the soil and the moisture and just the right amount of moisture. And uh, there's this 
innate intelligence that God has put within that seed so that just at the right time of year, when it knows that it's warm enough, it starts sending out a root and starts sending out a, a vine or a stem until it reaches the soil. What's the likelihood of that happening? Isn't that incredible? And yet, you know what's more amazing than that? The, the fact that God would take a, a group of average, ordinary fishermen and tax collectors and business people of the New Testament, Jewish men, and he would be able to transform the world through a band of those guys. Isn't that amazing? And yet that's what God did with the kingdom of God. Uh, a radical transformation that came to a band of ordinary Jews, fishermen, tax collectors, and the like, who ended up speaking out against rulers and religious leaders, living a life that is contrary to many that they came in contact with, eventually being put to death for their faith, which would have been in the end. But instead, this little movement grew fast and despite all the odds. It, uh, it reminds me of Acts chapter 5. If you want to turn over there, this is the situation where uh, Gamaliel gives advice to the council when they're trying to decide what to do with Peter and the elk that were also uh, preaching the gospel. And I think his name is supposed to be pronounced uh, Gamaliel. But if you're from the South, it's okay if you pronounce it Gamaliel, because that sounds a little bit more, kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit better. So uh, I may do either one here, but he's, uh, he's trying to give counsel to the council about what to do with Peter. And it says this, when they had heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. This is chapter 5, verse 33. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, and the teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was slain. And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is the work of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And the council took his word and said, oh, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Why? Because they thought it was just going to be like the rest of these. Few people wander off after this guy, and then he dies, and they like to lose interest, and it's done. But that wasn't so, was it? Because it was a, it was a plan of God to use this small group of individuals to grow an exceeding enormous church across the globe. And so it was amazing in that it was, it was unexpected. But it's also amazing because of the speed at which the kingdom of God grew. Just as with a small mustard seed, it grows over one season. It can grow just enormous. Same thing with a tomato plant. Or, you know, I've heard that, you know, a giant bamboo plant, you know, I'm talking about giant bamboo plant, things that like the 
panda bears eat, right? The uh, giant bamboo plant, it can grow a matter of feet a night when it's fully, fully established. Isn't that incredible? And yet the, the, the speed at which the kingdom of God grew was remarkable. It was amazing. It started first at Pentecost. Pentecost, And in Acts chapter 2, we read this. It says that there was about 3,000 souls added to the church in one day. <laughs> Is that not remarkable growth? It also says that the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. And in Acts chapter 5, it says, all, all the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Historians marvel at the speed at which Alexander the Great, starting from Macedon in, when he was at the age of 20, in 13 short years, he was able to cover his territory, so much so that it covered Greece, Turkey, Israel, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, Iran, and the northern part of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Even the prophecies of Daniel speak about the speed at which Alexander the Great was able to conquer that area. But you know what's even more amazing than that? The speed at which the church grew through that whole area. Most, just, most early church historians will tell you that uh, there were churches planted in every one of those regions before the apostles died. Isn't that incredible? That is an amazing speed. And this kingdom grew fast. Ken Curtis, in his article, The Spread of the Early Church, says this, It is unthinkable that a small, despised movement from the corner of Palestine could move out to become the dominant faith of the might of Roman Empire, an empire steeped in fiercely defended traditions and pagan religions. The spread of the Christian church in its earliest centuries is one of the most amazing phenomena in all of church history. But it's also amazing in the power behind the growth. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, what amazes me about the little seed is that God has created within that some kind of inherent intelligence to tell it when it's supposed to sprout and come up. And then as it comes up, the stem comes up, it hits the hits the air and sees the sunlight somehow, and, and uh, it begins to send out leaves, and that those leaves then are converted uh, or convert the sunlight into, you know, I'm not a biology, biology guy, right? Convert the sunlight into uh, hydro, what is it, Chloroph chlorophyll or whatever it is, and then that, you know, that begins to make the growth and all this kind of, it's amazing. But here's something even more amazing than that. God will take the nature of you and me that is an enemy of his, that is in opposition to him, and he will so change our nature, fill us with his spirit, so that we then have the power to go forth and to proclaim the gospel and to live a life pleasing to him. Isn't that amazing? And yet that is the kind of growth that we see in the New Testament and the kind of growth that's spoken about here. Again, Curtis and Ken Curtis in his article says this, the spread of the early church on the surface, the early church Christians appeared powerless and weak. They were an easy target for scorn and ridicule. They had no great financial resources, no buildings, no social status, no government approval, no respect from the educators. 
And after they had become separated from their first century association with the Jewish synagogues, they lacked institutional backing and an ancient tradition to appeal to, end quote. They did not spread the faith through swords or threats or political powers that be or through the typical means that we might consider as men. Rather, the power behind the gospel was the Holy Spirit working through the word of God as acted upon by the faith of the church. And that same church or that same power church is in us today. That same power is in us to be able to go and to proclaim the gospel to all the world, to reach Powhatan, to be able to grow this church. And so we can have hope. And so the church continues to grow in amazing may, in amazing may, I'll get it, in amazing ways throughout the world, even today. I mean, take, for example, China. And we've all heard the great testimony of what God is doing in China and raising up Christians. Well, here's some, some statistics on that. In, in the 1980s, early 1980s, it was estimated that there were only 3 million Christians in China. It's hard to tell exactly how many there are today, but some estimates say that there are over 200 million or close to 200 million Christians. That's a growth of over 60,000 times. You know, in our, in our culture, we think, man, that's a double the growth in my business. That's phenomenal. How about a 60,000 times growth? That's incredible. And the church continues to grow in staggering rates all across the southern hemisphere. Yeah, we can look at the U.S. and we can say, well, maybe it's not growing very fast here or in the Western Europe or whatever it is. But that, that doesn't mean it's not growing. In Africa, in Brazil, in South America, and other places all across the globe, especially in the Southern Hemisphere and Southeast Asia, the church is strong and vibrant, and it's growing like crazy. It reminds me of Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where we see a picture of, of all the redeemed clothed together before the throne. It says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, I have a question for you. How many is the number no one can number? Right? I don't know, right? <laughs> it's, it's no one can number it. And, and the idea behind it is that it's, it's too numerous. The growth of the kingdom of God is amazing. It continues to grow and it continues to amaze us as it does. And why? Because the power of the king and the sword of the war, word is more powerful than any device of man. Nothing can thwart the purposes and plans of God. Just as the pastor preached last week from Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? And again, in Matthew chapter 16, when uh, Peter gives his testimony, Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. His kingdom continues to grow and will until the end of the age. Why? Because it is not a work of man, but it is his work. And so we can have hope. The parable of the wheat and the tares teaches us that the growth of the kingdom will be mixed 
The parable of the mustard seed teaches us that the growth of the kingdom will be amazing. But thirdly, I want us to see from the parable of the leaven that the growth of the kingdom of God will be pervasive. What does it mean to pervade a space? It means to take it over, to spread throughout, to so influence it that there is, uh, that there is no place in which it cannot be found. Ordinary leaven is a symbol in the scriptures for evil in many cases, but it's not so here. In fact, it is a reference to the kingdom of God. And so in verse 33, it says this, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, the three measures of meal there, that there's nothing special to that other than, I mean, you can look at some of the, the old, uh, old writers and commentators and, you know, they talked about the gospel having, you know, the Trinity in the three, maybe, but more, uh, more specifically, it refers to, that was just the, the natural amount that a, a woman would make for her household was three measures of meal. And so it would have been very customary for the Jews when they heard this to say, oh yeah, that, we see that all the time where they put the, the uh, sourdough together and put it into the bread and it rises, right? which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. You know, the, the interesting thing about sourdough bread is you can't really, once it's, once it's uh, risen, you can't tell where the leaven is and where it's not, right? Why? Because it is so pervaded the whole lump that there's no, there's no way of telling where it is and where it isn't because it's, it's all over in there. And I think that's the idea of this parable. Leaven permeates or pervades the whole lump until it is all leavened. The message again is clear, although with a different emphasis, and that is that the growth will be extraordinary because it will pervade pervade the world in every aspect of the world. So let's consider the extraordinary pervasiveness of Christianity in the world and have hope. Wherever the church goes, society is improved. To the extent that the church grows in that society, the, is the extent to which society is improved. Some of the information I'm about to share with you is in a great book I highly recommend called How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schmidt. Take, for example, I'm just going to look at several areas of life in which Christianity or the Christian worldview or the church has made such an impact that it's pervaded the whole aspect of it. Take, for example, the value of life. The early church called abortion and infanticide murder. They would take in babies that were left for dead. They spoke out about human sacrifice in the gladiatorial games. And because of their influence, these things were outlawed in the Roman Empire. Alvin Schmidt says this, The early church's opposition to abortion, along with its condemnation, condemnation of infanticide and child abandonment, with a major factor in, was a major factor in institutionalizing the sanctity of human life in the Western world. And still today, who is it that is on the forefront of supporting life today? It is the church. Who is it that is across the globe continuing to stand up for the, those who are, who are innocent victims? It is the church. It reminds me of a friend who adopted two special needs children who would have been left for dead in Ukraine. Do you find non-Christians doing this? Is it the Atheist Alliance of America. Yeah, I looked it up. That's actually an organization, the Atheist Alliance of America. They pride themselves on being the oldest atheist organization in America, going back all the way to 1992. 
It's not these organizations that are doing that, is it? It's the church. It is the influence of Christianity that has positively affected the value of life and will continue to do so as Christians permeate societies. What about sexual morality, slavery, and social issues? It was said of the early church, by opposing the Greco-Roman sexual decadence, whether it was adultery, fornication, homosexuality, child molestation, or bestiality, and by introducing God-pleasing sexual standards, Christianity greatly elevated the world's sexual morality. It was one of the many contributions of civilization. It was Christians that pushed to get rid of slavery, a practice that is still occurring in many areas not affected by Christianity. Thus, the effort to remove slavery was not a new phenomenon in Christianity, nor were the efforts of the American civil rights laws of the 1960s to remove racial segregation new to the Christian ethic. They were merely efforts to restore Christian practices that were already in existence in, in, in Christians' primal days. Who is the day that is at the forefront of real social issues? It is the church. What about charity, compassion, hospitals, and health care? Who do you think were behind the first hospitals? What about the first uh, ministry, uh, mercy ministries? Who is it now that provides the greatest amount of humanitarian aid around the world? Think about many of the organizations that uh, provide humanitarian aid. Most of them were started as Christian organizations, World Vision, UNICEF, Compassion International, Henry Duran, who founded the Red Cross, Salvation Army. Regardless of what their state is now, they were all founded and started because of Christian influence. We're the atheist organizations for the poor and the downtrodden. You don't find them. Because it's the church that permeates society and changes it. What about education? Christianity has improved literacy rates everywhere it goes. The great universities across the Western world, how do they get their start? Harvard, Princeton, Wake Forest, Browns, Oxford, Cambridge, Trinity. They were all Christian organizations to start with. Some of the greatest areas of learning throughout history have been churches and in monasteries. What about liberty, justice, labor, and economic reform? It was the influence of the church and the Protestant Reformation that revolutionized the economy and increased the standard of living in all of Europe and brought it out of the poverty of the Dark Ages. What about science? Albert Schmidt again says this, without the Christian belief in one God, there would be no science. It is the Christian worldview that is the foundation for all science. God is the rational being, and a man was created in his image. Therefore, man must also follow rational processes to study his creation. Leonardo da Vinci, Mendel in, in biology, Versilius in, and, uh, in, all, in physiology, all were influenced by Christianity. Copernicus, Brahe, Kepler, Galileo astronomy, all were influenced by Christianity. Newton, Leip, uh, Leibniz, I'm not even know that it is. Some of you science people know. <laughs> Ampere, Faraday, and physics all were influenced by Christianity. Boyle, Dalton, Carver, and chemistry all influenced by Christianity. What about art, architecture, literature, and music? It was the Christian influence that added human life to art. Cathedrals, tall pointed arches, ribbed vaults, flying buttresses, all in architecture influenced by Christianity. What about the library system? It was organized primarily by monasteries. What about the greatest literature that we know of in our Western world? They were all Christian influence. Shakespeare, Pilgrim's Progress, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien. One cannot even escape the influences of Christianity on calendars, words, symbols, and expressions. The whole calendar is structured around Christianity. Now, the French Revolution tried to do away with that. How'd that go? 
did go so well, did it? Christmas and Easter, even Thanksgiving, Christian influenced. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Whole calendars based upon Christian influence. The fish symbol. Even expressions like good Samaritan, good shepherd, rob Peter to pay Paul, gospel truth, thorn in the flesh, turn the other cheek, brother, doubting Thomas. All expressions that Christians and non-Christians use alike influenced by Christianity. Alvin Schmidt again says this, the Gospels are the very building blocks of our civilization. Without them, Giotto would not have painted his frescoes in the Arena Chapel in Padua. Dante would not have written Divide Comedy. Mozart would not have composed his Requiem. And Wren would not have built St. Paul's Cathedral. The story and the message of these four books alone with Judaic tradition of the Old Testament pervade not only moral conventions of the West, but also our system of social organization, nomenclature, architecture, literature, and education, as well as rituals of marriage and death, which shape our lives, Christians and non-Christians alike. So what can we take from this? Well, number one, be encouraged. Look wherever you want, and you will see the influences of Christianity upon society. That's a good thing. The church is powerfully permeating the entire world. Isn't that encouraging? But secondly, be salt and light. Permeate everything with the leaven of the gospel. We are, to, we are to involve ourselves in every aspect of society so that we may permeate the whole and pervade it with the gospel. Artists pervade the world with Christian art. Business people pervade the world with Christian business. Engineers pervade the world with inventions and structures and systems and machines to the human flourishing. Teachers pervade the education with the Christian worldview. Contractors build, clean, serve with the Christian worldview. Let me ask you a question. Is the world in which we live today better than it was a thousand years ago? Absolutely. And will the world a thousand years from now be better than it is today? Absolutely. Why? Because God is building his church, and that church is transforming the world. We can have hope. Don't have a defeatist mindset. We are on the winning side. Take courage. Sure, evil will be with us to the end. That's what the parable of the terror says. But so will King Jesus. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we are grateful that you are a God who is in control. Your providence is so at work within your church and within your world so that we can see your church growing amazingly. We're able to see it permeate every aspect of culture and society. And we're able to see it grow despite the persecution and the odds that are against us. We're grateful to you for that. Use us now for that very purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.